Eagles Entertainment. With the 15th pick in the NFL Draft, the Philadelphia Eagles select... You're listening to the Journey to the Draft podcast. Welcome to the Journey to the Draft podcast presented by LifeBrand. I'm your host, Fran Duffy, and we're going to talk quarterbacks today here on the Journey to the Draft podcast presented by LifeBrand. But uh, I'm going to give you all a look behind the scenes here to podcast production. I recorded an entire one-hour-long podcast. Myself, Greg Cosell, Ben Fennell, and Draft Buzz. We're still going to get to that conversation. But right as I hit stop on record... The Eagles made a big trade, and so I had to reshoot the entire open. There's going to be some stuff later on in the show that seems a little timed out, but I felt like we need to get some analysis of this trade. And for that, I'm going to hand this over uh, to Chris McPherson, my friend, C-Mac. The Eagles made a big trade here on Monday afternoon. Blockbuster trade here. When you look at the details, the Eagles, okay, and the New Orleans Saints agreeing to send. Now, the Eagles are going to maintain two first-round picks out of this. That's the big thing here. They're going to have 15 and then they're going to move back from 16 to 18. Now, in exchange, the Eagles receive a first-round pick in 2023 and a second-round pick in 2024. In total, the Eagles still have 10 picks overall this year because they also received a third-round selection and a late-round selection, a seventh-round pick from the Saints in that deal. So really, the way I look at this trade right off the cuff Number one, it gives the Eagles a ton of flexibility, and that's something that's already been talked about, right? Is the Eagles now have plenty of flexibility. You add some extra picks for 2023. You even add that extra 2024 second-round pick, a high-value asset moving into the next offseason. But to me, the big thing, I think you break this trade down, and this is what always gets a little complicated when you have all these picks changing hands. I always like to kind of like break it down into two trades. And for me, I look at the 16th pick, and I say, okay, well, the Eagles essentially traded back from 16 to 18. The asset that the Saints would have needed if that was it would have just been that third round pick. So 101 overall. So the, the Saints essentially trade 18 and 101 and they move up to 16. All right. So you take those three picks. Let's throw them out. Now you see the, the second part of this trade. The Eagles trade the 19th pick and a sixth round pick this year in exchange for a first round pick next year, a second round pick in 2024, and a seventh rounder here this year. So you take those, those six and sevens, they kind of wash out, and you say, okay, the Eagles traded a one this year for a future one and a future two. And again, just kind of spreading out those assets and giving you a lot of flexibility in future years. Flexibility is the key word here, okay? Now, it also reminds me, if we go back to last year, the Eagles had the six overall pick. Yep. Then it was end of March, so a little earlier than this trade, made the big move with Miami to go back to number 12. And they acquired the extra picks and gave themselves some flexibility. Now, what did they do on draft day in the first round? They moved up to go get Devontae Smith. So the Eagles can still do a lot of damage. They wield a lot of power in this draft because they have the two first-round picks. They have five picks in the first 101 selections here. So Harry Roseman is probably not done. The biggest thing is you get this out of the way now instead of having to do you know on-the-clock negotiation draft weekend. You get this out of the way. You continue your pre-draft process with your meetings and visits, and then you can go into draft weekend knowing exactly what you want to get done. The Saints must have had a motive. They wanted to get that extra pick. They wanted to move up there, so they've accomplished their goal there. The Eagles – They get their assets for the future, but maintain the flexibility to be able to do work here, and they still hold a lot of cards in the 2022 NFL draft. And that's the big thing, too, and you kind of touched on, was that, uh, you know, and it's funny, I actually say this a little bit later in the show. (laughs) We had a a mock draft for our draft mailbag segment. Uh, One of our listeners sent in a mock draft, and he said, oh, with the 16th pick, I traded out and got a future pick for next year. And I said, "That's that's well and good. Everybody's looking to do that. That's that's hard to be able to say. Oh, definitely going to knock that out. So the Eagles, they get out ahead of that. Now you're not worried about being on the clock, draft weekend, and trying to secure that 2023 first round pick or that 2024 first round pick. Now that's all done. Now you're going into draft weekend, understanding exactly the picks you've got at your disposal, and you still have that ability to move up and down. But getting this part of it out of the way, knowing you've got that next year asset, that's huge. It's huge. And the thing is, now you get to look at the Saints next year during the season and follow their progress and to say, all right, how are the Saints doing? So it's not just, you know, standings watch when it comes to the Eagles. You're going to be watching what New Orleans does to see what that pick next year is going to be like there. So huge move here for the Eagles. And it's interesting because we always wondered would Howie Roseman actually pull the trigger and have three 
first round picks. Yep. I'm sure the plans would be in place if need be. But again, you get the capital for the future to maintain that flexibility but you still have two first-round picks this year. So great, great move on the Eagles' part there. No question. Well, uh, C-Mac, thank you for joining us here. Uh, real quickly, for like an emergency session uh, to reshoot this intro uh, again. Now we'll get into the rest of this podcast. Again, we got Draft Buzz, Greg Cosell, Ben Fennell. We want to talk about quarterbacks here today in this episode. All the quarterbacks in this class, we're going to cover them from the very top in round one all the way through round seven. What are the best-case scenarios for all of these players? We'll hit on that with Greg and Ben. Then we've got our draft mailbag at the end. The best way to support the show, head on over to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify, wherever you listen. Leave us a rating. Leave us a comment. We appreciate everybody that has thrown us your support. Again, anything you leave us, we will answer it. We will address it. We will break it down here in an upcoming episode. So if you've got thoughts on this trade and the, you know maybe you've got players that you're eyeing up for next year, whatever it is you've got on your mind, head on over to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify. Leave us a rating. Leave us a comment. Leave us the question. We'll answer it here in an upcoming episode. That said, Let's get things started with the episode that I recorded a couple hours ago uh, with Greg Cosell and Ben Fennell. It's time for Draft Buzz. Now it's time for Draft Buzz. All right, well, excited for this discussion here as I welcome in Greg Cosell and Ben Fennell. And guys, we're going to talk through the quarterback position, obviously the most important position in all of sports. And just for some clarity, for you know, just to kind of illuminate what we're looking at here in terms of how many of these guys are going to come off the board here when we get to the, the draft in a few weeks. Over the last decade, the average number of quarterbacks drafted every year right around 11 and a half. It's pretty steady with double digits every single season. The only year since 2005 to have less than 10 players drafted was 2015. That was the Jameis Winston, Marcus Mariota draft. And I actually remember that draft was, yeah, you got these two guys that are going to go one, two, but the depth really fell off. Only seven quarterbacks got drafted last year. So I think by the time, or in that year. So I think when we talk about this class uh, in general, look, we know, you know, I, I think everybody wants to paint with that brush. Hey, it's a, it's a bad draft, you know, pass on it overall, punt to next year, but these guys all have talent and they all have skill sets that can translate to the NFL. It's about it's a matter of massaging those strengths and improving in some key weaknesses, which we will get here get to here uh, in this discussion. That's why I'm excited to welcome in Greg Cosell and welcome in Ben Fennell. Guys, it's going to be a, a fun conversation here talking through this quarterback class, Greg. Uh, okay, we'll see how how much fun it is. We'll uh, <laughs> we'll figure that out. We know that quarterbacks are still going to be drafted, Fran. They're probably going to be drafted in the first round too. Uh, you know, because it's it's an interesting dynamic. Ultimately, if you feel that you don't have one that you can feel comfortable lining up with, you're likely to draft one because you have to get better at that position. And you're going to feel that if you don't have a guy that's going to play well for you, you're going to draft one. And I think the exciting thing about this class, Greg and Fran, is that I see 32 teams right now with somebody that they could go start with, right? You know, a Sunday game. So I don't see any glaring holes or complete needs like in previous draft classes where these quarterbacks are thrusted up into the draft, thrusted into starting positions immediately. I see 32 teams with quarterbacks to play a game this Sunday. So I think that makes finding landing spots and projecting the draft to be very tricky. But there certainly are some NFL caliber quarterbacks in this class, where they go, when they go. That's the question for everybody. Yeah, and it's no different. You know, last year when you saw five quarterbacks go in the top 15, the chances of all five of those quarterbacks all hitting and, and living up to that draft status is low, right? So just law of averages, uh, not all those guys are going to work out. And I would say the same thing for this class, but the inverse, one of these guys is going to pan out, right? And so the really the goal of this conversation is to really kind of look at all of these quarterbacks through the prism of best-case scenario. We all know that, yeah, ideally for all of these players – they, get, they go with a, a team with a good running game and good defense, and maybe they don't have to play right away. They've got that veteran presence ahead of them, and they can be brought along slowly. So we're going to all just assume best-case scenario for all these guys. What do they bring to the NFL, and, and where are the areas they need to improve if they're going to achieve that high level of play? And I want to start uh, with quarterback Kenny Pickett from Pitt. Obviously had a huge season this year as a super senior for the Panthers. Uh, Greg, I know you were very high uh, on Kenny Pickett and what he can bring. We've talked about him uh, here with you on this podcast. So uh, for those that missed that episode just a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, kind of uh, illuminate what you like most about Kenny Pickett. Where does he stand out most to you in your mind in terms of how he transitions to the NFL? Well, I try to think when I watch quarterbacks as to what they are going to be asked to do in the NFL. Um, and obviously there's different kinds of quarterbacks, but at some point in the NFL, 
you're going to have to drop back. You're going to have to understand what you're looking at. You're going to, to simplify it, Fran and Ben, you're going to have to throw the ball to the right receiver at the right time with the right kind of throw in situations that are, maybe are not really comfortable. Obviously, when it's first and 10 or second and three, and the offense can be far more proactive and tactically can be ahead of the defense, a lot of quarterbacks can function in those situations. So the question is, when you have to drop back and it's third and seven or third and eight, and you have to have certain traits that need are needed to be able to deliver in those situations, you're going to have to do that at some point in the NFL. And I think what you see from Kenny Pickett on tape, and much of it is a function of what he was asked to do in college with the offensive coordinator that he had, is you saw that he had vision. You saw that he had a sense of progression reading, some full field reading concepts, because Mark Whipple, a former NFL coach, was his offensive coordinator. He had a sense of timing. He threw with a sense of anticipation. For the most part, he was pretty accurate. And he had, I think, far better athleticism and mobility than many of us might have thought going into this season. There were games where that was a factor, and he made those kinds of, of plays. So to me, Kenny Pickett has traits that ultimately will work at the NFL level. I don't know what Ben thinks, but I, I heard from a lot of people, well, he doesn't have a special trait. And I don't think anybody's suggesting that he's Josh Allen or Patrick Mahomes. Uh, so I'm not sure exactly what that means, but I think that he can play the position as required at the NFL level. I think taking that one step further, Greg, Tom Brady and Peyton Manning might not have had special traits, you know, aside from what's between right. their ears and their ability right. to get the job done. So, you know, when you're just looking at their traits and their upside, I completely agree with you. You know, Kenny Pick is an accurate quarterback and a good decision maker. Yep. You know, wasn't always making quick decisions, wasn't always processing quickly, but you saw NFL route <laughs> concepts, NFL route combinations, whether it's pure progression or timing routes or leverage reads, and he showed he can make nearly every throw and every read. Now, the consistency behind that, the frequency in which you ask him to do that on a down-to-down -down basis, that's the question. And I think when you look at a Kenny Pickett, and I put a lot of emphasis on third and five-plus like you had talked about, Greg, we would, all love to, down. we would all love to live in second and two, you know, right. in that type of world where the whole playbook's open and defenses are on their heels. But it's the high level situations in the red zone, third and medium, third and long that the NFL scouts and the NFL in general are certainly looking under the microscope. And that's really where Kenny Pickett looked pretty good as an NFL prospect. Well, it's funny because just, I'm sorry, Fran, just to play off what uh, Ben said, you know, one of the things that you saw with Kenny Pickett and that offense, which you see in the NFL all the time, and you rarely see in college football, is in three-by-one sets where he'd work to the trip side, and if he didn't like it, there'd be a, a backside route. Very often that route is a dig because it has to time up. He, he made those throws. You rarely even see those routes in a lot of college offenses, and you see them all the time in the NFL because there's three-by-one sets more often than not unless the quarterback is working to the boundary X, which they, they can often in the NFL. But if it's a trip side read and he doesn't like it for whatever reason, there's a route to the backside that times up with his drop and his front side read. And he made those throws. You just don't see that in college football very often. And it's a major part of NFL offenses. Yeah. And also following up, Ben, when you talk about uh, the red zone, I mean, I think it's uh, it's safe to say that Kenny Pickett, when you look at the way that he performed down in Mobile at the Senior Bowl, his best day was that Thursday day in practice. And that was also red zone day uh, for both of those teams. So, um, you know, looking at terms of uh, where he wins to me, when I look when you guys talk about like those third and five high leverage situations, it's all about. Where, where do you have your answers? And you have to have answers right. for the defense is going to be able to get, bring you. So uh, if it's going to be pressure, uh, you know, which you're going to see a lot of them third down, right? Third and long, you're, you're going to get the threat of pressure. You're going to see man coverage. Do you have the ability to have that answer for what the defense presents? So you're going to have that either with your mind or you're going to have that uh, with your legs. And, and with Kenny Pickett, he's got a little bit of both, right? Oh, I, yeah. I think that he can get a little bit better uh, in terms of his overall uh, poise in the pocket. That's where he can kind of break down uh, a little bit. And we've seen that uh, a little bit on film, but also he can break out of the pocket and run a little bit. So I think you have that that good combination of the decision-making uh, with the, some of that second reaction ability. And I think that's what does make him uh, one of the more intriguing prospects in this class, Ben. And really quick, Fran, just putting some context to some metrics, Kenny Pickett actually held on to the ball longer in 2021. You don't traditionally see quarterbacks get more experience 
have more playing time and hold on to it longer. What's the context in that? Well, Pitt doesn't have a lot of quick hitting concepts, not a lot of RPOs and screens to get the ball out of his hands. Also, push the ball aggressively down the field pretty consistently, which are longer developing concepts. He was also much more willing to create out of structure as well in 2021 while keeping his eyes up and being a distributor. Those plays take time. So while it looks like his time to throw is increasing, that doesn't necessarily mean he doesn't know what he's looking at or isn't making the right reads or on time. I think there's some aspects within the offensive design and how he got the job done that obviously allude to maybe holding on to the ball longer. Not always a negative, just reading the metrics. Sure. Uh, well, let's go to the next quarterback here, because uh, when I talk about having answers for what the defense is going to present, what Malik Willis uh, is going to have from an answer standpoint is different than what some of these other quarterbacks have, and that's because of his dynamic athleticism. So, Greg, let's talk about Malik Willis and uh, what he presents uh, for NFL teams and his transition to the NFL. Well, Malik Willis is interesting because – you constantly hear that he's got high-level traits. And I'm not trying to be sarcastic, but he can throw it hard and he can run fast. My guess is if you speak to a lot of coaches, most offensive coaches, neither one of those would be at the top of their list for traits that are absolutely essential to play quarterback in the NFL. Now, it's not his fault that the offense he ran at Liberty was uh, not a a particularly uh, advanced offense. In many ways, it was remedial. That's not his fault. Um, But he, to me, he's a quarterback that has a lot to learn about the NFL game. Now, quarterbacks that can move and run often will make a lot of second reaction improvisational plays early in their career. And you have the design run game. If he has to play early, that will factor into all of that. But I think as far as the the precision of the passing game and being able to execute and ball distribute, I, I my sense is from watching his 2021 tape, which I personally did not think was that strong. I think he would have a ways to go. Ben, when you look, when you look at Malik, uh, you, what stands out to you in terms of uh, where you think he can win early on in the league is going to be very reliant uh, on his legs and on that, uh, that arm talent that he has. Well, certainly he's going to be able to make plays. And I think he's going to be a divisive quarterback once he gets into the league because of that, because it's going to be that cat and mouse conversation of results first process. And he generates results. It just isn't always with a seamless or a traditional process of playing quarterback. And I agree with Greg, you know, that offense wasn't that exotic. It wasn't that high level. And between us, if he's at Liberty and it's not that exotic and high level, I want it to look like Bailey Zappi at Western Kentucky. I want him to execute that simple offense because he's that much higher level of a prospect and player on Saturdays than his competition Uh, that he may be facing. I just didn't see that. I think the timing, the rhythm, the anticipation, the post-snap elimination needs a lot of work. But he made plays. And I just think he's going to continue to make plays as a young player in the NFL. And just that maturation process into year two, three, and four, can he grow and develop as a quarterback? And that's what the tape doesn't show us. It doesn't show us his mental processing, his coachability, his work on the whiteboard, the issues on the sideline, the issues in the huddle. Those are all things you're hoping to check and figure out before you get him in your building. But we all know that's not a perfect science either. And it's a learn on the job and learn when you get them type of type of industry. So, um, you know, as much as I could say he looks like a very competitive player, he also reminds me of, you know, a thicker, more explosive JT Barrett. You know, that came out of Ohio State about 10 years ago. He was a Big Ten Offensive Player of the Year. You know, had a cup of coffee with the Saints as a day three player, and he's off to Canada. So uh, I think I've seen guys in his height, weight, skill set that haven't produced either. Yeah, you know, I think fun, yeah. I think he's got more dynamic qualities. Than, I see what you're saying about Certainly, it. certainly. Absolutely more dynamic than JT Barrett. But. Yeah, I think the big thing, too, is that it, it comes down to something, Ben, you and I talk about this all the time here on the pod, across all positions, is just because you didn't do it in college doesn't mean that you necessarily can't do it in the NFL. It may mean that, but we can't say for certain that it could mean that. So we should, we can't necessarily, uh, Greg, you said it, uh, you can't penalize Malik Willis and say, no. oh, well, you know, it's his fault that that's the offense. <clears throat> Uh, that he found success in. But uh, now it's going to be up to teams during this pre-draft process to say, okay, that's what he had to do in college. What can he do for us in the NFL? Can he uh, become more accustomed to the way that we want to be able uh, to play the game? Because he's got the, the, the best plays of Malik Willis are extremely impressive and are reminiscent of some of the young playmakers we've seen enter the league at that position. Right. But you do have to, again, 
I sit and watch the tape. You know, we've all watched the tape. So the tape shows concerns. And again, because I'm not sitting down with Malik Willis, I'm not doing the due diligence like a team. You know, when you watch his tape from 2021, you come away with a couple of concerns. Field vision is a concern. There was not a refined feel for elimination and isolation. There wasn't really a sense of progression reading. Again, he wasn't asked to do that, so it's not there. He didn't really have a feel for pocket movement, for managing the pocket. He was a pocket lever, not a pocket mover. And he'll make plays doing that, as Ben says. There's no question. He has a playmaking dimension to his game, and we've seen more and more of that in the NFL. And there's no question he's got a live arm and a power arm. So there's throws that he can absolutely make. Uh, but he also had a tendency when he did leave the pocket to move backwards. You can't really do that in the NFL. That can work in college, but it cannot work in the NFL. All right, let's make our transition now to the next quarterback I want to hit on, and that's Desmond Ritter uh, from Cincinnati, who I think when you're looking at it, it's, all right, well, this is a, a big kid, good-looking kid. He's athletic. The arm talent is there. He'll be a 22-year-old redshirt senior, so a 22-year-old rookie, 48 games started. He goes 43 and four uh, as a starter in his career. Uh, tests off the charts from an athleticism standpoint. So you get a sense of what he can do in, in that arena. But Greg, I'm interested to get your thoughts on, on what you saw from Desmond Ritter on film and, and how he transitions to the league. Yeah, Ritter was intriguing to me because I think there were some really good things and a couple of things that really need to be cleaned up. Um, you know, to me, I, I, the thing that stood out, which is not an X and O point, but there's just a natural poise and composure to this kid. Everything about what he does is easy. Now, he's very deliberate and he needs to speed up. He needs to speed up his drop, his set. And that's really important at the NFL. He'll need to do that. And his delivery at times can be a little elongated. Um, his, he does have a tendency to drop his arm angle. Those two things often led him to miss layup throws, which you cannot miss in the NFL. So those are things that ideally need to be cleaned up. But Ritter at his core is a pocket player, even though he's a very good athlete. He is a, another guy that's ultimately an executor and a ball distributor. And he did a very good job of that in an offense that did have a lot of pro concepts in it. He made some really strong throws. My sense is that he's, he's a quarterback that needs to go to a team where there's a run game foundation, where play action RPO concepts are meaningful parts of the equation. But to me, there's no question that he can operate and execute the drop back passing game when needed. You saw that in college. Yeah, I completely agree there, Greg. I think just his, his timing, he's taking care of the football. Um, I think his less poor decisions and getting the ball out faster in 2021 uh, really benefited him yep. in going back to school. I think he sees the field extremely well. I think one of the best quarterbacks in this class and just seeing post-snap movement, eliminating targets, going through his progression, like you had talked about with Kenny Pickett, getting to that backside isolation route, whether it's a dig or something right. long developing, you don't see that on Saturdays. And he's a very poised quarterback because of that. Now it's just the accuracy, you know, and I think that elongated delivery does hurt the layups. And I think the accuracy wanes even further once he gets off platform and has to throw on the move, uh, which when I watch his offense, he wasn't asked to be on the move by design quite often despite having that big arm, I would love to see him in a play action boot, something that he could really sit survey and pick apart a defense yeah. with that big arm, several throws throwing at 60 yards plus uh, not always completions, but he has the throw and the arm to make any throw in completion around the field. Desmond Ritter is a really interesting player. I currently have a second round grade on him. I have him two rounds ahead of what Jordan Love was at a Utah State two or three years ago. I think Desmond Ritter is just behind Kenny Pickett as far as being able to really run an offense and be given the keys to an NFL team. That's yeah. what, what's fun about him is that athletic, you know, because I do think that I, I agree with you guys in terms of getting him all out in the move and, and letting him uh, make some of those plays in space. Like a couple of the guys that I wrote down while watching him, Ryan Tannehill, Marcus Mariota, Colin Kaepernick. Like I just had, I think it's because he's got like that, uh, that uh, tall kind of that slender build to him. He's got a, a pretty good arm on him as we talked about. Uh, so Greg, that, those were some of the guys like stylistically that Desmond Ritter reminded me of in terms of his ability to make that jump. Yeah, I didn't have a really good comp for him. So, you know, I, nothing came to mind. But I just want to make uh, add to a point that Ben made, which I think is really good because I made this note. I said he made reads and throws versus disguise and late movement defenses and coverages. There was no sense of confusion. And I think 
because he did that kind of easily, you almost take it for granted. But you rarely see that on Saturdays with with quarterbacks and the ability to number one, recognize the defensive movement because you don't see that very often at all. And he saw it and it never flustered him. It never impacted his poise and composure. He never seemed as if he was playing fast. Now, as I said, I think there was a deliberate nature to a lot of what he did. And you walk a fine line there. You don't want quarterbacks to play fast, but I do think there are certain areas where he has to just pick up his pace. But for the most part, he was never a guy that seemed hurried in anything he did. You know, it's funny you say that, Greg, because while Kenny Pickett had good production and play, I feel like his down-to-down execution was a little frenetic at times and a mu- little more skittish than a Desmond Ritter. And it may be purely aesthetic base with Ritter. Right. He was so calm, yep. so poised, rarely panicked under pressure, rarely had his eyes drop, rarely wanted to drift out the back door. And you just saw that a little more with Kenny Pickett whether it's that little twitch of panic and then get his eyes back up or maybe taking two steps backward and drifting out the back door. Desmond Ritter, I feel like his poise and his comfortability in the pocket under duress, under post-snap movement was very calming to watch. And it may just be an aesthetic thing. Like you had said, Greg, I just never felt like he panicked. And I think that goes a lot further than just completing a third and four for five yards. I think it gives everybody that sense of confidence, whether it's the coaching staff, the huddle, the O-line, you know, your weapons on the outside. Desmond Ritter seems like a guy that the game isn't too fast for or too big for. It's funny because, like, there are some guys where, like, those vibes just kind of come through, like, the more you watch that film. And for me, like, watching Matt Corral uh, from Ole Miss, there were two things that stood out to me about Matt Corral. Number one, everything is quick twitch. Everything's just fast. Uh, and not even, like, hurry, but just everything is fast and smooth. And then the next thing with Corral, his toughness uh, really, really stands out in a lot of different ways. And whether you're watching them on TV on Saturdays or going back and watching the film later, uh, both of those two traits really stood out with me. Greg, you and I have talked offline about Matt Corral, but you haven't been on this podcast talked about him yet so interested to kind of get your more thorough thoughts on uh how you feel he can make that uh, easier transition to the nfl where he kind of fits best yeah i mean he ran a really highly schemed tempo high percentage defined one read pass game in college and often a no read pass game it was here was the throw and you throw it um there were a ton of rpos there were a ton of quick bang play action as i call it and then every once in a while there's a deep throw that was the lane kiffin offense with matt corral now he's got that tight snap compact delivery little range of motion the ball comes out and as you said fran he's got quick athletic feet there's twitch to his movement he's a good athlete he certainly won't be running as much by design in the nfl as he did in college although he was bigger than i thought he'd be because i think on tape he looks smaller and i was blown away by the fact that he was six one and five eighths but um he ran a tempo offense and tempo offenses tend to regulate the defense and they more often give the quarterback a very clean pre-snap read. And he, that's what he, the offense he ran. Can he do more than that? You'd like to think so. Again, we're not going to sit down with him. Um, you know, how is he going to handle a full field progression concepts that you can incorporate and integrate w- within the spread RPOs and the play action elements that he's most familiar and comfortable with. Those are questions that need to be asked and answered. Um, So how quickly can he learn that? But there's definitely traits there. He's a very competitive kid. Um, But, you know, I think there's some things that that you're uncertain of. He has very limited experience in the drop back passing game and the protection concepts that go with it. Yeah. And that's why, like, when I look at Corral, it's like, all right, well, uh, the amount of RPOs in the screen game that we saw and then mixed in with those really well-defined and highly schemed deep shots that we saw time and time and time again uh, in that Lane Kiffin offense where uh, the clipboard goes flying while the ball's mid-flight because he just knows it's there. The, right. the throw is there. Uh, to me, like, I look at Seattle, uh, the way that they've played with Russell Wilson. I look at New Orleans. I look at Washington with, with Scott Turner as the offensive coordinator. And I say, oh, these are schemes where – this would, this would make sense uh, for a Matt Corral, right, in terms of uh, being able to slide in and kind of make that fit. Uh, ben, I'm interested to kind of get your thoughts uh, as we're talking about this with Corral uh, and just how you see him transitioning. Well, you know, I think Matt Corral at Ole Miss gives me a lot of feels of a recent quarterback. We just studied in Zach Wilson at BYU. Similar quarterbacks in completely different systems. And I feel like if Matt Corral was in that run-first system at BYU and 
turning his back to the defense with, you know, outside zone fakes and play action boots. I think he would look pretty similar to Zach Wilson. Now he's in this RPO kind of quick hitting, you know, one read concept at Old Miss in a much different offensive style. But I think he's a very similar type of player with a quick twitch, a live arm, can throw off platform, can throw from a variety of different arm angles, throws a live ball, whether down the field or, you know, on quick hitting concepts as well. He's a really interesting player that you have to kind of remove from the system and really start to break him down with what is he bringing to the table for the next level. And I think removing these guys from their system, what they were asked to do is a part of this kind of enigma in figuring out who you're getting from Saturdays to Sundays. And it's a bit of a guessing game at times. You know, you can only get, you know, 30 minutes or so to work them out on a field and get a sense for how they can look. But completely changing a Saturday system to a Sunday system is typically where these prospects go wrong for him. Yeah, it's a, it's always a fun part uh, of the discussion. I feel like it's also a similar – you have similar kind of conversations uh, that you would talk about with Corral that I think we would have with Sam Howell, right? Because uh, when you talk about that offense, and especially when you go back to, to 2020 uh, when they had you know that full complement uh, of pass game weapons and certainly that run game. But when you watch Howell, uh, you know, the, the deep ball stands out, the toughness stands out, uh, that quick over-the-top release stands out. Uh, Greg, when you watch Howell, uh, what is it that stands out most to him that gives you faith that he can make that jump. Yeah, I, I mean, I think Howell has NFL quarterback traits. I actually know Sam Howell, and I talked to him at the Combine, and I asked him you know, how he thought his year was, and he was super honest. He said, I didn't have a good year. I tried to do way too much. And I thought that was evident watching the tape because I actually watched him last summer as well and thought he was a pretty interesting prospect. Um, and I would say that in what he did this year is – I don't know if he was just not comfortable with his receivers. I don't, I, you know, I didn't get to ask him this because there were other people around and uh, then they moved him along, but he looked like he wanted to be anywhere, but the pocket this year looked like he couldn't wait to get out of the pocket. And that was not the case in 2020. And I think that there's no question he possesses NFL traits. He's got a strong arm. He can drive the ball at the intermediate and deeper levels. He gives you a running dimension. Again, he won't run as much in the NFL as he did in college. But you mentioned the over-the-top delivery. You know, you don't see that very often, but he has that. Um, I thought in North Carolina's past game, there were a lot of predetermined throws. And because he didn't feel comfortable making those throws, he just left the pocket. Um, instead of, you know, staying there and trying to find another throw. Um, so it, it almost relates to Ben's point about Matt Corral. You know, if you if you just look at the traits and you take him out of the system he was in and how he played within that, you think, OK, this guy's got, got some things working for him that you think he can be a quality NFL quarterback, but you just don't know. Like with Matt Corral, you don't know. You know, there's a lot to like about Matt Corral. And and. Ben made an interesting uh, comparison with Zach Wilson, who clearly struggled this year because you can't live in the NFL off trick shot throws. And he just didn't see things very well. So he had that learning curve. Will Matt Corral have that same learning curve? We don't know. Um, and Sam Howell, you know, there, there's a lot to work with from a trade standpoint. Yeah, I think he hit all, all the points there, Fran. Obviously, you know, small, thick, tough. Good runner, competitive, has the vertical, easy arm, tons of RPOs, play action. Yeah. You know, the quarterback design runs are all exciting. I guess I want to take a step back as we just covered Sam Howell, Matt Corral, Malik Willis. Neither of them really pushing 6-1, all in that kind of six-foot range. Are we more willing at the quarterback position to go against the prototypical size these days? I mean, are the Kyler Murrays going first overall? Baker Mayfield first overall the year before? Is that becoming that much more acceptable? Because in my opinion, those are outliers. You know, the Drew Breeses of the world is an outlier. Russell Wilson at 5'11", 205 is an outlier. Are we becoming more willing to take risks on these outliers, Fran? Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, it depends on your definition of outlier because you just named four starting quarterbacks out of 32 teams. And it's like, all right, well, if it's one-eighth of the league, is that, an, is that too much of an outlier, right? And that's what it's – I think overall, we are feeling more comfortable with guys that are a little bit on the undersized side of the spectrum. Uh, I mean, Russell Wilson fell to the third round strictly because 
of his size, right? That's what everybody said. I remember back in 2012, everyone was like, yeah, if this guy was two inches taller, he'd be a first round pick. Like that was what everybody said. It was in everybody's scouting report uh, on Russell Wilson, right? So um, I do think that at this point, and Greg, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this, uh, that we are more comfortable with guys that are coming in under uh, six foot one on the, uh, you know. And Fran, just to cut you off for a second, Greg, I have fundamental issues with short quarterbacks. I think it really eliminate or, uh, you know, prevents your ability have you seen a psychiatrist sick. about this? <laughs> it's, it's on the list for next week. It's on the list for next week. We got a lot to talk about in the offseason. But I just feel like it's much harder to get down-to-down execution done when you're shorter and have to throw around those trees and those massive players in front of you, whether they're on your own team or the guys hunting you with their hands up. Uh, I just um, feel like, you know, the Tom, the Tom Brady's and Josh Allen's just give me much more – calmness to get the job done as a quarterback well let me tell you something you hit it you almost took the words right out of my mouth um as meatloaf once saying but um anyway (laughs) um it's a great point because in talking to an offensive coordinator who's coached russell wilson he was making the point that because think of it this way if you want your your offense to be pass game first and i don't mean you're throwing it 50 times but if you want it to start with the pass game then there have to be a lot of shorter throws not all rpos i'm just talking about shorter throws like let's say y stick okay everybody runs y stick in the nfl i can't tell you how many times you see an offense open with y stick because it's a you know it's a 7 yard gain and now it's second and 3 well the offensive coordinator for seattle said that russell wilson we we can't run that because he can't see that. So there's a lot of throws that quarterbacks who are smaller, basic concepts that if you want your offense to really be built on the pass game, that those quarterbacks cannot see. So it's very easy, for instance, with Russell Wilson, and we're not saying he's not a good quarterback. That's not the point. But the point is, maybe there's one reason that, that there was a run game uh, emphasis in Seattle all these years. And, you know, because everybody says, oh, it's Pete Carroll. He just wants to run the ball. Well, he's not stupid either. Um, you know, maybe there's certain things that they know Russell Wilson can't do because he can't see it and you can't establish your offense and have any kind of sustaining consistency with him just throwing those six or seven yard passes. Ben made a great point. How many times have we seen Brady? He just drops back and throws a five yard ball. Then it's second and five. Then he throws another four yard ball and it's third and one. He'll take those throws all day long and you can't always get those throws with shorter quarterbacks and i think as you want to get those throws typically they're in the shotgun as drew Brees, you know obviously he's right. one of the more accurate productive quarterbacks in the history of the nfl it then eliminates some of the connection to the run game you can marry your offense yep. to and there's some other fundamental and philosophical issues with you know just having that shorter presence quarterback i love the conversation of it and it's not a knock on the the short guy or just saying I'm all in on the six, five guy. I'll show you a six, five guy that can't, you know, hit water out of a boat. But, you know, I just think it's a really fun conversation to talk about the pros and cons behind sizes at positions. Yeah. And I think, you know, that pertains obviously to Malik Willis, six foot and a half. It pertains to uh, Sam Howell at six Oh five, Matt Corral, just over six foot one, six, one and a half. Right. So um, from those guys to a guy that's built more like the prototype in terms of the traditional sense uh, of the quarterback position in Carson strong from Nevada, six, three and change 226 pounds, uh, Greg, when you watch Carson Strong, I know you've done him over the last couple of years. Uh, what do you like most about his game and translating to the league? Yeah, I think he's a tough transition because, I mean, again, he's wearing that heavy knee brace. And, and we saw that with Davis Mills a year ago. And then the knee brace came off and Davis Mills showed at least functional mobility. So I don't know what Carson Strong is going to be as he advances. You know, that's something that teams, they do all that work. I don't know what the answer to that question is. Maybe you guys know that better than I. But this particular season, and I watched him in 2020 as well, he came across as very old school to me, built solely on beating you from the pocket, not any significant or game-changing secondary action ability. And I think those kinds of quarterbacks, unless they're special throwers, um, it, it, it's tough to succeed. Now, I'm not, believe me, I'm not advocating, let's just run around. But I think at some point you need movement. And movement doesn't have to be the movement we think of with Kyler Murray or Russell Wilson. But there needs to be some kind of movement. Even Tom Brady, you go back to Dan Marino, they had outstanding movement within the pocket. I'm not sure Carson Strong is that guy. So to me, 
he really has to master all the nuances and subtleties of the discipline of the position. He's got to work out of muddied pockets where there's people around him. He's got to be really strong before the snap of the ball so he knows where to go with it. Um, the ball placement has to be really precise. And I don't know whether it was a function of his leg. I didn't see him as a special thrower. I saw him as a good thrower. Like I wouldn't see him as, let's say, a Carson Palmer. To me, he was not that level of thrower. Right. Yep. Yeah, I think that's the where it comes down to is okay uh, when you when you say all right, well you don't have that lat mobility. It goes back to what we were talking about at the top, right? Having that answer for the for what defenses are going to present. And so if you're not going to win with your legs, then you need to be elite with your mind and essentially with your arm, right? And so uh, that means your ball placement, your touch, your decision making, your anticipation, all of that stuff has to be top top notch. And so that's going to be the uphill climb for Carson Strong. Uh, ben, when you watch Carson Strong, how do you feel about his overall game uh, moving to the league? What do you think best suits uh, his ability to make a successful transition? Well, I love his one-dimensional aspect in that he got the job done primarily with being a pocket-passing distributor, which is exciting for some regards and concerns you and others. And I feel like he worked the ball in the deep and intermediate areas of the field, particularly better than most quarterbacks in this class, whether it's you know, the vertical seams to the tight end, yep. Cole Turner on the outside of Romeo Dubs. I felt like he was very aggressive in getting the ball down the field. He also expected guys to make plays for him. And I think his ball placement kind of suffered because of the massive catch radius with the 6'6 tight end and the ability of the you know guy on the outside to separate vertically, I think gave him a more room for error at times or maybe challenging balls left on the inside, things like that. I felt like it was a really well-run and balanced offense. I mean, a guy that was aggressive in executing the concepts and receiving targets that made plays for the quarterback. He didn't have a lot of drops this past year. Um, and I think his, you know, his arm talent is exciting. And now it's just of, can he survive when things aren't perfect? And as you guys know, things are rarely perfect in the yep. NFL. And that was always my knock on Sam Bradford. When you can make it perfect, Sam Bradford will go to the hall of fame. The second something goes wrong, his left guard got beat and needs to slide or receiver slipped and he needs to give an extra hitch. The second he can't just be a robot. That's where things kind of dried up for a Sam Bradford, who, you know, all intense, won the Heisman, went first overall, but had issues on Sundays executing because things go wrong. And a lot of emphasis when things go wrong, you have to watch how they handle that. Yeah, I think that's a great point, because to me, the more important point is not just running around, but the more important point is the pocket movement. And again, I don't know about the knee brace, because as I, I, you know, I mentioned Davis Mills, who actually showed at least they had functional movement this year for the Houston Texans, which you didn't really feel was the case when you watched his, his tape at Stanford the last year because he had that big bulky knee brace. So I don't know where Carson Strong stands with that, but the kind of quarterback, he's never going to be a, a second reaction player in any kind of strict sense, but pocket movement, moving within an area that is, let's say, the size of a boxing ring or a little smaller, that's something he will have to master to play in the league because it just, as Ben said, you're going to get those situations. He's not going to run around, but he's going to have to be able to deal with people around him and pressure. And pocket movement is a critical element of his game. So I didn't get a real strong feel for that. But Ben's right. He made a lot of intermediate and deeper throws, which you don't see often a lot in college football. And he was aggressive in turning those loose. So a couple more guys I want to make sure we hit on it. And Ben, you alluded to Bailey Zappi earlier from Western Kentucky, five-year starter, another one of these uh, super seniors here uh, in this class, uh, started his career at Houston Baptist. And there at Houston Baptist, never had a winning season. He actually finishes his career 17-33 and 33 as a starter. That's after going 9-5 and five this year uh, with the Hilltoppers in Western Kentucky. Uh, the, now he started five years, and despite the transfer, he actually spent his entire career in the same version of the air raid offense. His offensive coordinator went from Houston Baptist up to Western Kentucky and Zappi followed that coordinator uh, in the transfer portal this past <coughs> offseason. So, uh, Greg, when you watch Bailey Zappi, uh, another one of these undersized guys, six foot and a half, 215 pounds, uh, obviously operated that offense very, very well, was extremely productive, set a bunch of records over the course of his career. Uh, what do you look, look at when you see Zappi? Well, he had a very refined and nuanced feel for his scheme. I mean, again, it's your classic case. He, he totally understood his scheme. He executed at a very high level. He was very decisive with his reads and his throws. 
Um, he was a kind of a dart thrower. Um, you know, obviously he does not have a big arm. The ball came out fast though, for the most part, um, his ball placement was pretty precise. Um, he gave receivers on short throws, run after catch opportunities. I mean, we all know the obvious issues. The arm strength is not what you ideally want. He's a touch and pace thrower. Um, some deeper throws lost energy on the back end. Um, there were times where the delivery, when he really had to try to make a, a intermediate throws where he tended to be a little deliberate because he really had to put a lot into it. Um, there were a lot of schemed manufactured throws. You could say that there's more of those in the NFL, but you can't live on those in the NFL. To me, I watched him and Ben, I'd be curious what you thought. I, I got the vibes of the, like the Colt McCoys, the Case Keenums, the Taylor Heineke's, you know, to me, he was that kind of player. Yeah, absolutely. I have Case Keenum written down with a little star, you know, right. the undersized quarterback air raid spread point and shoot type of offense yep. production was incredible. I think you saw press coverage on two plays. Uh, I actually watched a bunch of his games last week here with Charles Davis. We were going through some of the day three quarterbacks. And as we didn't see anyone within five yards around the receiver, we went to the next play. Right. Because free access, he pointing, he was point and shoot and he shredded defenses and he showed the touch, the accuracy, the layering, the anticipation, always knew where to go with the ball. There was rarely any disruption to the rhythm and the timing when you yeah. don't get that press coverage. And the other thing, being six one or just over six foot, I thought he maneuvered and worked the pocket very well because he had to. He had to find throwing lanes, yeah. had to find windows to get that ball off because he can't throw over and through the trees. So Which, I thought it was very much like Taylor Heineke. No question. I think Heineke yeah. at uh, Old Dominion was very similar, and that's kind of yeah. how he plays in the NFL. So, you know, he's very exciting. I think his production, uh, you know, and his highlights will kind of make you sit up in their chair, but he's going to be a guy that's going to be almost completely reworked mentally and just put him in the same bucket as, you know, we said Heineke and Case Keenum really any Mike Leach quarterback, you know, right. coming out of Washington state or <laughs> right, right, all right. those record breaking quarterbacks that came out of Texas tech that barely sniffed the NFL yet threw for 50 touchdowns and 5,000 yards in his system. It's going to be a big jump mentally from Saturday to Sunday for those guys. Well, it's funny you say that because I've talked to so many coaches, not only with this system, but just in general that say to me that, you know, I don't even look at the plays where it's just pitch and catch, or I don't even look at the at the screens because it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. It's, it, it has no bearing on whether a guy is going to succeed or not in the NFL. A little easier to get through the tape too, Greg. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, to me, the, a lot of these quarterbacks that you guys have talked about with this bucket, when you go through the, the Heineke's and the Keenums, it's important to remember, all those guys went undrafted. Like Of all yeah. the quarterbacks you guys named, I mean, Colt McCoy was a third or fourth round pick. He's coming out of Texas, right? So a, a little bit of different in terms of level of competition. Yeah, well, the, the helmet mattered there. Yeah, no question. Yeah. Yeah. And Colt McCoy also had the most wins in the history of college quarterbacks. So right. he also he had a couple extra chips. Yeah, and so that will be interesting to follow here with Zappi, obviously not coming uh, from that level. Exactly how early will teams feel comfortable uh, pulling the trigger there? And I think it's also, you could make the same conversation here with Caleb Ellaby from Western Michigan, uh, a junior who declared for this draft, uh, just he's under six foot one, he's under 210 pounds. So again, more of that undersized kind of point and shoot passer. Greg, uh, thoughts here on Caleb Ellaby and what he brings to the league. Yeah, you know, there was something about him that I kind of liked a little bit. I mean, I think I don't think he's the same by any stretch as as Bailey Zappi. I think he's you saw him in a true drop back passing game having to make some throws. Um, and I thought that he definitely showed a sense of timing. I mean, he made throws outside the numbers versus one-on-one -on -one coverage where he had to throw the ball with timing and anticipation, and he made those throws. So, you know, to me, I think there's something there. He, the traits are not high, high level, obviously, um, but I think he can play in the league. I'm not suggesting he's going to come in, you know, week one and be a starting quarterback, but I think there's something there with this kid. You know, he certainly doesn't check all the boxes in terms of physical traits and athleticism, but I thought there was a, an efficiency to his game. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. Maybe Ben, you totally disagree with me, but there was something about him and some of the throws that he made that I thought I said, you know what, that those, those have an NFL element to them. Yeah, and I think as we're seeing a lot of the concepts from Saturdays to Sundays become more prevalent, it's easier for you to kind of make those mental connections. And yeah, he threw a lot of vertical shot plays on the outside, yep. a lot of RPOs and kind of quick hitting inbreakers. really took advantage of a high-level athlete in D. Eskridge last year. Sky Moore seemed like he was the recipient this year. Guys with quick twitch on inbreakers and vertical speed. 
offense wasn't that different from how Sam Howell played at North Carolina, where I feel like his best stuff was either an RPO or a vertical shot play. You just get worried about the tools. He's not a big guy, doesn't have a big arm, not the most mobile guy. I feel like he did something similar to like a Matt McGloin at Penn State, who has been kicked around in the NFL for a bunch of teams because they just can't, you know, quit his leadership and decision making and accuracy, just not the size of the tools you would expect or want. So uh, Caleb Ellaby has put up a lot of good football the past few years at Western Michigan, and I expect him maybe not to be a draftable guy, but he'll certainly be a camp body to consider. You know, it's funny. I was going to just say, Fran, that, you know, I made a note to I I watched all his third downs. I just felt like it. I I probably didn't need to do that. It was probably too much, but I felt like it. And, you know, on third down um, where he was asked to take deeper drops and it was the drop back pass game, no play action, no RPOs. You know, he had to read some things out and they ran some pro stuff. There were high lows. He ran dagger. There was mesh. There was smash slot fades. I'm not suggesting these are, you know redefining Western civilization as we know it, but there were a lot of intermediate and vertical route concepts on third down where he had to take deeper drops and read it out. And he did that. And he's not a toolsy guy. And like I said, he doesn't check all the boxes or even that many of them, but I think there's something about him. And and I'm not going to sit here and tell you where he would get drafted or if he's going to get drafted, but he's going to be in a camp. Yeah, I think that he's really – and the the, uh, the people that are into, like, breakout age and the overall numbers, not, not necessarily box score scouting, but essentially box score scouting, uh, you're going to be impressed with Caleb Ellaby for what he did at a young age and uh, the, the production that he was able to put up. I mean, 10.7 yards uh, in terms of uh, – uh, average depth of target, you know, from a clean pocket, uh, his touchdown interception ratio is high. His yards per attempt average is high. Like, uh, you go down and down the list, the numbers are really, really kind to Caleb Ellaby. But again, you guys, I thought painted a really good picture uh, of his skill set going to the league. There, ben, there's a trio of quarterbacks here. I want to hit on you from the back, from the, uh, the back end. I feel like our kind of day three prospects somewhere over the course of rounds four through seven. So these are the guys uh, I haven't yeah. seen, right? Yeah. These are the three Greg that you hadn't seen. And so I'm interested to kind of get Ben's thoughts here. <laughs> ben, ben, I'm going to let you decide which way you want to go here to start, because you can really make a case really for all three of these guys for me and say, okay, like I, I want to start here. I really feel good about Chase Garbers from Cal. Jack Cohn from Notre Dame and Cole Kelly from Southeast Louisiana. I will let you go here and let you decide where do you want to start here? Cause I think all three have really intriguing skill sets, especially if you're looking at guys that can manage the pocket and do a lot of things that translate well to the NFL. I'm just glad we got out of the six foot six, one quarterback category. I'll take this one, Greg, you just find a route concept to redefine Western civilization over there. <laughs> <clears throat> I haven't seen I, one of those. On can, my I go screen get a, a while. can I go get a drink? I need to get a drink, <laughs> <laughs> but real quick here. All right. Jack Cohn out of Notre Dame, the Wisconsin transfer didn't play in 2020. The last time we saw him was a really competitive game in the big 10 championship against Ohio state and Justin Fields in 2019. This kid looks the part. He's six, four, leader, tough, good arm accuracy, woefully inconsistent. It's these types that quarterback coaches just can't quit. You know, this is the Tyler Braze of the world where you just want to hold on to them because they have all the tools, the size, the ability. You just want to keep developing them behind the scenes. But that quarterback developing has not been what it was over the last, you know, five, six, seven years. And that you just don't have the time with these kids gets the ball out, you know, fast. He's not a scrambler makes good decisions. Again, like the Sam Bradford, there's no twitch. There's no creativity. There's no uniqueness to his game. He doesn't throw off platform or with unique arm angles. Needs everything to be perfect. And he's just a little robotic within that. So he's a guy that looks apart. I see these every year. Quarterbacks, co- Quarterback coaches just cannot quit. I promise you Jack Cohen will be on a practice squad. Yeah. No, Fran, you want to add anything there? Yeah, no, I think that you hit the nail on the head there with Cone. Um, you know, I think that, you know, when I go back to like my notes, I'm trying to find like who's a, a pro stylish quarterback that uh, had similar strengths and weaknesses. And a guy I landed on was CJ Beathard. And, and Greg, I know you and I, uh, we talked a lot about CJ Beathard the year that he came out. And so uh, you saw like uh, the arm talent was fine. The You saw the, the poise in the pocket. The anticipation was lacking with C.J. Beathard. The the consistency uh, with his ball placement, especially in the intermediate and deep parts of the field, were a little bit up and down. Uh, And that's kind of what I look at uh, with Jack Cohn. Like what we talked about with Carson Strong, if you don't have that answer with your legs, you've got to be great A-plus, A-plus, A-plus across some of those other areas. And I don't know that he's quite there yet, but certainly to a point where he can be counted on to be be a backup quarterback. And uh, now it's almost the opposite. 
with Chase Garbers, where Chase Garbers <laughs> from Cal, I think he's he's a little bit more quick. He's got a little bit more of that second reaction ability. He's a little bit smaller, but at, you know, at 6'2", 220 pounds, I, I was pretty impressed with this kid. He's got a quick release. Ben, I'm interested to kind of get your thoughts on Garbers. I know he's a guy uh, you studied last week as well. Yeah, Jack Cohn, really quick, uh, just for Eagles fans, for perspectives here, just kind of not a true one-to-one comp, but just think of like a Nate Sudfeld. You know, the good size, he's always going to be that quarterback three. You don't want him to be the backup. You just want to keep working on his tools behind the scenes there, keep on the practice squad. But Chase Garber is another guy with good size, just under 6'3", 225. A lot of under center concepts, multi-tight end concepts, 21 personnel stuff. Why is that? His offensive coordinator, Bill Musgrave, you know, former NFL head coach, longtime offensive designer in the NFL. You see a lot of those NFL concepts on that Cal offense, a lot of play action pass, turning his back to the defense, good decision maker, accurate, kind of a responsible game managing type that we see all the time on Sunday. So he really reminds me of like a Jimmy G type player and the way he looked in the San Francisco 49ers, little conservative, but a guy with good size, good mobility and can execute an offense. I would put his deep ball up there with just about anybody in this class. Like he's not like a, a horsepower thrower where all like you watch him drive like the deep comeback and you're like, Oh man, like that was a beautiful throw. But in terms of like throwing with touch and placement, you know, into a bucket outside the red line over the shoulder to a tight, uh, to a receiver <laughs> on a fade or on a post or you know, layering throws at the intermediate area. Like, Garbers, there's some really impressive throws from him over the court. He also has some really clever ball handling as well. With all those yeah. play action concepts, you get to see how comfortable he is with kind of the hidden ball tricks. Look at his touchdown against Oregon just outside the red zone, kind of hides it behind his back for a second. Anytime I see that, just tells me the game is slowed down for him. Mm-hmm. He's not frenetic. He's not panicking. Very poised, very calm out there. Yeah, and supporting cast was not kind uh, to Chase Garbers either out of Cal. Um, real quick, last one, Ben. Uh, Cole Kelly, yep. Southeast Louisiana. Arkansas transfer. was a, a, a big-time recruit uh, coming out of high school. Goes to Arkansas. Uh, he actually goes, I think he went three and he went three and three as a starter over his first couple of years. He was kind of in and out of the starting lineup. Ends up transferring to Southeast Louisiana. Uh, big boy. I mean, six, seven and a quarter. He was listed 260. Came in just under 250 uh, at the combine. So, uh, this is a big pocket passer. A little bit of a throwback from that standpoint. Uh, what do you see from Cole Kelly on tape? Yeah, massive quarterback at 6'7", 250, easy thrower, very quiet lower half. He doesn't need a whole lot of body movement to get the ball out there. Surprisingly, he makes a lot of plays off platform for being 6'7", 250. He can throw on the move. Um, he's good kind of getting to the perimeter on the edge, whether in structure or out of structure. I love that he gets to his checkdowns on time. It's a guy that's more than willing to kind of dump the ball off underneath, let guys make plays for him. No problem throwing over defenders letting pass rushers into his chest and making throws, all those things you want out of a 6'6", 6'7", quarterback, no issues thrown over the trees with that guy. And remember, Southeast Louisiana, he had a lot of drops. He didn't have a lot of help out there at that supporting cast. Quarterbacks with over 500 dropbacks, the best adjusted completion percentage because of that. A lot of drops in that offense, didn't have a whole lot of help. 6'7", 250, could he be a Derek Anderson, Ryan Mallett, John Navarre? Could he be a Tyree Jackson, you know, and really he's just a big guy that you have to find another home for positionally. So Cole Kelly, very intriguing player. He actually, there were honestly some shades of like Nick Foles when Foles was at Arizona too, yeah. um, in terms of uh, this, the skill set. But uh, I was glad you made the note on terms of the adjusted completion percentage and some of those metrics were really friendly uh, towards Cole Kelly. Uh, guys, this was fun. And like I said, all of these guys, obviously not going to work out. Some of these good chances are, one of these guys is going to work out to be a starter, and a bunch of these guys are going to stick uh, in the NFL. So uh, always good to be able to kind of have these big-picture discussions about the position. Greg, Ben, thanks so much for joining us here on the Journey of the Draft podcast presented by LifeBrand. Eagles fans, Merrill Reese here to tell you about the Eagles Autism Challenge presented by Lincoln Financial Group. This annual Ride, Run, Walk event supports autism research and programming as we work hard every day to advance the conversation from awareness to action. This year's event will take place on Saturday, May 21st at Lincoln Financial Field. With your support, we can help transform the lives of individuals affected by autism. Register today at eaglesautismchallenge.org. Now it's time to hear from you, the fans, in the Draft Mailbag. 
All right, good stuff there from both Ben and Greg. Let's now transition to draft mailbag, where we'll start things off with Maddie G28, who left a five-star review on our Apple podcast page saying, uh, Eagles draft question. Friend, uh, I have to say a huge thanks to you for being my first stop for draft evaluation for the last several years. Had an Eagles question about the interior defenders in the draft. I know we brought back Fletcher Cox, but I can see us looking for a long-term defensive tackle in this draft. Not looking for rankings, but out of Jordan Davis, Devontae Wyatt, and Perry and Winfrey, what's your pros and cons to each? What immediate fit can you see with each one? And which feels most pro-ready to you? Thanks, as always, for your time. So, all right, so I would say when you look at those three players, and really it comes to you know, almost like one extreme to the next. When you look at Jordan Davis, obviously we know what the book is on him, right? He is a mountain of a man. He is dominant, downright dominant against the run, and he's got pass rush upside, right, where it hasn't been proven yet. He has not been overly disruptive in terms of affecting the quarterback. That's sacks, hurries, quarterback hits, pressures, whatever metric you want to look at on a per-snap basis and from a pure volume standpoint. The production just not has not been there for Jordan Davis, who came off the field on a lot of third downs, right? So on a lot of those opportunities to get after the quarterback, he was not always asked to be out there for those reps, right? Because they like to shift in uh, younger defensive tackles with more pass rush upside. They kick some of those DNs inside as well. So a lot of those snaps, just not a lot of them go around for Jordan Davis and also to Devontae Wyatt as well, for what it's worth. But when you go to Perry and Winfrey, He's a little bit different. He's not going to be playing the nose tackle spot. He's not going to be uh, that head-up player over the center or playing on the outside shade. He's going to be playing against tackles. He's going to be working against guards as a pure three technique. He's got that ability to be a disruptor and get into the backfield. Uh, Now, the production, he's only been there for two years, has been solid. It hasn't always been great. I think when you look at the, the way that he plays, it is based off violence and quick first step his explosive traits really really show up Uh, all three of these guys really play with outstanding motors you're going to find clips of all three of these guys making plays outside the numbers I think when you look at Wyatt he's kind of that blend of Davis and Winfrey where you're going to get a a proven run defender and an unproven pass rusher but with Wyatt he's a little bit smaller he's got the athleticism is certainly there he's got a quick first step he showed that off at the Senior Bowl, uh, Wyatt's probably as the oldest of these three players, so you have that to take into consideration as well. So I think when you look at uh, all three guys, neither of them a finished product across all three downs. But now it's just a matter of what you're looking for and what you're hoping to address. My guess is you're not looking at your defensive tackle room and saying, okay, we, we're just going to take either Jordan Davis or Perry and Winfrey, whoever the best one is on the board, because both of them have you know complementary skill sets. One, great against the run and unproven against the pass. And then you look at Winfrey and say, all right, he's a little bit better against the pass than against the run. So it's just a matter of what you're looking for uh, and what you want to try and add to your team. So good stuff there uh, from Matty G. Let's wrap things up here with Pete Nathan, who left a five-star review who said, uh, we've got a mock draft here. And Fran, love the podcast, been listening to you and the team for years. Here's my mock draft. Let me know what you think. So we'll take this uh, day by day here uh, in the draft. So round one, three picks here for the Eagles. Devontae Wyatt, we just talked about him, defensive tackle uh, from Georgia. He also has the Eagles trading out a future first-round pick, third-round pick in next year's draft, and then Drake London, the wide receiver from USC at number 19. I would say that it seems like Drake London's going to be off the board by that point based off mock drafts. A lot of people uh, having Drake London go off the board in the first 12, 13, 14 picks. Uh, But I think when you look at London, certainly uh, oversized wide receiver, can line up inside or outside, excels above the rim, does an outstanding job going up and winning at the catch point, Uh, is getting a little bit better as a route runner, but still coming along there. Um, We'll see if he's going to get a chance to put a full workout in um, from a, a pro day standpoint. He's coming off. Uh, that ankle injury, a broken ankle, suffered back in October. But I think when you look at Drake London, that's kind of the crux of his game. We already talked about Devontae Wyatt. And we talk about trading out. A lot of people are saying, yeah, I would love the Eagles to trade out, get that future first-round pick. Well, there are a lot of teams that are looking for that future first-round pick, right? So that can be easier said than done. Uh, obviously, I have a lot of teams looking to do exactly that. Let's now get to day two of this draft. Two pick, Three picks here. A second-rounder in Tariq Woolen, the corner from UTSA. So that's the number 51 pick. Tariq Woolen, he is pure height, weight, speed. He is every trait you're looking for from a physical standpoint at the cornerback spot. He's 6'2 plus 6'3. He runs 4'3. He's got outstanding traits. He's just got to, he's just not lived up uh, to those traits. Now coming from a lower level of competition, right? Uh, But this is a track star in high school, goes to UTSA, 
develops every single year as a corner, gets better and better and better, just not a finished product yet, but you're betting on the come there with Tariq Woolen. Now, a couple third-round picks. Carson Strong, we talked about him earlier here in the show, get a sense of what he brings to the table. Obviously, the knee injury, a little bit of a concern, but when you look at his ability to win from the pocket, uh, that's what he does best. He manages a muddy pocket well, uh, and he can deliver. He can be that point guard for you as a passer. And then you have Nick Cross, the safety from Maryland, who uh, tested really, really well. I think when you look at height, weight, speed stuff, uh, just really, really impressive. Well put together. He'll come down and lay a big hit on you uh, as a receiver over the middle of the field. He'll come down and smack running backs in the run game. He's got some versatility to him, some coverage chops to him. So I think when you look at Nick Cross, one of the more intriguing safeties in this class. And then we'll wrap things up here on day three for uh, for Pete Nathan's mock draft. Round four, Pierre Strong, running back, South Dakota State. Scorcher, right around 4-3 in the 40-yard dash, a little bit of a slasher uh, in terms of his overall skill set. Kind of reminds me a little bit of like a Raheem Mostert. Uh, Mostert was undrafted coming out of Purdue, but that similar kind of skill set with what he brings to the NFL. Cole Turner from Nevada, he is a tall oak tree, a tight end, getting a little bit better as a blocker. He has some leverage issues there at the point of attack, but he can be a red zone weapon. He's got some natural pass-catching ability. Obviously, you pair him uh, with his college quarterback there in Carson Strong. Cordell Flott, the corner from LSU, he's another one of these uh, he's kind of similar to Tariq Woolen from a height, weight, speed standpoint. And then when you look at Flott, he's built very similar to a lot of the LSU corners we've seen here in recent years where he is tall, he is long, he is twitchy. He's got a lot of the traits you're looking for. Just hasn't all come together. He's a junior who declared for the draft uh, early, was not super, super productive over the course of his career. So I think when you're looking at Flott, more of a developmental player, but a lot of upside there, a lot to like. Alec Lindstrom, we talked about him, the center from Boston College, four-year starter there for the Eagles, two different schemes. He can get out in space. He can win at the point of attack. He's just not superly uh, toolsy in terms of offensive line. He's not the, the biggest, strongest, fastest, most powerful. Uh, that's not necessarily his game. That said, he is still pretty fluid. He could do some things out in space. He uses his hands really well, so there's a lot to like there from Alec Lindstrom. And then the last pick in this mock draft, pick number 194 in the sixth round, Myron Tangovailoa Amosa from Notre Dame. Defensive lineman, played defensive tackle for a large chunk of his career. Looks like he's shedding weight and embracing more of an edge rushing role. So we'll see exactly how teams view him. Uh, maybe he's a Milton Williams kind of hybrid player. We can kind of take a look and see. But uh, this is a guy who went to the Shrine Bowl out in Las Vegas, performed well out there, reportedly. Uh, Tango Vailo, Amosa, an interesting player, certainly uh, coming from the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. So Pete Nathan, Matty G28, appreciate both of you guys. Thanks so much for listening to the show as long as you have. And thank you for your uh, continued support here of the show. We'll be back here later this week. Ben Fennell, uh, we've got a great mock draft to break down. We've got more fun things to break down. I've got a couple guests lined up. Greg Cosell will be back later this week for his normal pick six segment. So we've got more to come right here on the Journey of the Draft podcast presented by LifeBrand.